Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman, and we're going to be joined by one of our colleagues a little bit later, Will Salmon, our Florida writer, about quite a bit of drama uh, going on in Gainesville right now. But first off, Bruce, I just want to thank your employer. I'm really looking forward to some great noon Eastern college football games this season. Yeah, uh, that is uh, that is now out there. I think that one of the things that my bosses at Fox have seen is that whether you look at a Michigan-Wisconsin game a few years ago or certainly the Texas OU game, which is actually an 11 a.m. local time kick, they've seen some really good traction that it gives the pregame show, which they've done from on-site as well. And obviously we've revamped our pregame show with Brady Quinn leaving our crew, going to the studio, and Reggie Bush and Urban Meyer now joining Leinert and Rob Stone. So I think that's something. So you'll see a lot of Gus Johnson and Joel Klatt's crew doing that noon game. I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going necessarily to be every time that, but I think there's going to be an added emphasis to try to try to get as, get a lot of big games into that noon window. That doesn't mean that because Fox has the big 10, the big 12 and the Pac-12, it doesn't mean that there won't be some big Pac-12 games. They just won't be at 9 a.m. 9 a.m. local time. You know, you can you'll still whether it's an Oregon Washington game or whatever. I mean, those games still will be when they were gonna. You know, when they think it's best to play them. But you know, we've got a bunch of changes at Fox, and this is a little bit of the uh, the shift as it's going forward. Yeah, I definitely think it's an interesting strategy. As I wrote in my mailbag on up Wednesday, I think there's an opportunity there because prime time's gotten very crowded, and when you think about the if you watch game day, uh, whatever time zone you're in, Lee Corso puts on the headgear. He's at some huge, you know, some site of some huge game that's going on. Let's say it, it's the big SEC game that day, or it's the big primetime game. So everybody's fired up. He puts on the headgear, and then they then they toss it to, you know, a Purdue Iowa game that's at noon on ESPN. So I think there's a there's an opportunity there for Fox. Also, it just seems like suddenly everybody in network TV wants to move things earlier because. ABC ESPN announced their first three ABC primetime games of the season will be Oregon Auburn, LSU Texas, and Clemson Syracuse. And they are those games in the past have always been at they they come on at 8 p.m. Eastern. They don't actually kick till like 8:15 or 8:20. Uh, now they're going to be 7:30, and people who who end up getting stuck up till midnight or later on the East Coast watching these games. I've got to be happy about that. And that I don't, uh, to me, as somebody who, you know, is doing games, I don't mind um, um, West Coast-based games that end at midnight. That doesn't bother me, I, you know, the half hour. I don't, to me, it's like, because usually there's a game on after that, too. So I, the half hour to me isn't like, oh, that's a, a reason for celebrate or not. But, but it is interesting. That noon window is pretty ripe 
you know, we've had some games. I did a couple of years ago. I did a Michigan State hosting Penn State game in that noon window. That was a three and a half hour delay game. That still did a huge number uh, because a lot of times, you know, as you said, the competition's not great in that window. You, you know, we did my crew last year, late in the year. Nebraska was really struggling. Nebraska came into Ohio State. We were on at noon. That game got over five million, uh, an audience of over five million fans in that noon window. So it's, uh, you know, again, some, a little of this is behind the scenes, you know, inside baseball stuff. But, you know, for a lot of fans, I think they, they will plan accordingly to go, okay, well, you know, y- you hear a lot of people say they want those earlier games. I remember, you know, it was probably like four or five years ago, Matt Wells was the coach at Utah State and I'm talking about Mountain West Media Days. And he was like, I would love to play every game at one o'clock. And there's a lot of folks who think that so earlier in the day and, and we'll see, you know, I think there's still a lot of stuff that has to be released in terms of when, you know, scheduling is usually more of the details come out at the end of the month rather than, you know, we're in the middle of May, but right. just means we're getting closer to the start of the season, Stu, and that's a good thing. To be clear, Bruce, I think the coaches love earlier games. I don't think the fans do in most places because if this means Oklahoma is going to be playing at 11 a.m. Central more often, even more often than they do now. Like, that's not ideal for Oklahoma fans. That's less tailgating time. That's an earlier start. But as you know, TV pays a lot of money to show these games. TV calls the shots. And the people who actually go to the games are, I mean, this isn't new, just kind of have to arrange their lives around it. That's the way it's been for some time. I wanted to bring up an interesting item in the news on Tuesday. It's a little wonky to try to get into, but it is a big deal. The NCAA is establishing a working group, because that's what the NCAA does whenever an issue comes up. They form a committee to examine name, image, and likeness. So if you're not familiar with that phrase, think back to the Ed O'Bannon case from five years ago, which was started because Ed O'Bannon saw himself in the NCAA, EA Sports NCAA video game and wondered how it was that they could be using his image and likeness and not compensate him. And so this issue has hovered out there for you know longer than five years, probably this whole decade. And recently, a couple of congressmen have threatened to introduce legislation that would require the NCAA to compensate athletes for name, image, and likeness. And so nothing prompts people to action more than the threat of legislation. So they are forming this working group. It is chaired by Val Ackerman, commissioner of the Big East. And there are some names on there you would definitely recognize, like Gene Smith, the Ohio State AD, and Bob Bowlesby, the Big 12 commissioner. But it's also got people from Springfield College and Henderson State. And Bruce, did you know that there is a school in Lubbock besides Texas Tech, Lubbock Christian? I do, because I read your column this morning. Uh, By the way, can you name the most famous Henderson State product? I cannot. Do you remember Roy Green? Great receiver for the Cardinals, like a two-way player. I do, yeah. I think he was a Henderson State product. None of this is to smirk at Henderson State, but just to point out that none of those schools are ever going to have to deal with profits from name, image, and likeness. But this being the NCAA and wanting to include everybody, they are including Division Two and Division Three representatives on this committee. So, uh, look, I don't know what will come out of it, but for years and years the NCAA has not even wanted to acknowledge that this is a thing. Anything that had to do remotely do with money to athletes just got immediately demonized. And I think kind of deceivingly, they've tried to mislead the public a little bit into thinking that to calling all of this stuff pay for play, 
when in fact there's a big difference between pay for play as in we're going to cut a check cut a salary put the put the players on the payroll and cut them a salary versus hey you know maybe we make all these millions and millions of dollars to use their you know images and names maybe they deserve a little bit of a cut of that so they are at least open to discussing it you know it's interesting because when I hear this, you just think about, okay, this will be rife with the chance for boosters and people around connected to programs to manipulate it and ripe for cheating and abuse. But the reality, I think, now is, and, and our friend Pat Forty wrote this this week, we're kind of at that point anyway. I mean, look, you've seen the basketball scandal. I mean, just from the coaches I talk to, they feel like cheating in college football now is worse than it has ever been in in the time that you and I have covered the sport. So let's see where this goes. I'm curious to see what, what comes of it, if anything. I tend to think it'll be on the more conservative side. I mean, you know, people immediately jump to, oh, does this mean that, that NCAA video game is coming back? Does this mean that, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, guys are going to be able to do autograph signings and car dealership endorsements? Yeah, I wouldn't go that far just yet. I think that the fact that there are all these Division two and Division three people on there tells me that they're looking for something that they can do that would show them to, that they would be able to say, hey, look, we're doing something. We're being proactive. We're being reactive, actually. But we're not willing to rock the boat too, too much. And I don't know. We'll see. But it is a significant uh, moment that the NCAA is, that the NCAA actually put out that press release and formed this committee and is actually going to discuss this as a real thing. There's been a lot of news lately surrounding the Florida Gators, most of it not good. So we wanted to take this opportunity to Find out a little bit more what's been going on off the field in Gainesville with arrests and transfers and Dan Mullen talking smack to Georgia. And so, Bruce, what do you say we get to our guest? All right, Stu. And now we are pleased to be joined by our guest. He is the Athletics Florida beat writer, Will Salmon, who has done a really good job for us, as our subscribers already know. But it's been an interesting time, Stu, with Florida. Dan Mullen's first year went really well on the field. They finished off the season with a big bowl win and then finished recruiting with a flourish. And then the last month or so, though, things have gotten pretty messy there. And just, you know, as we bring Will on here, so you first had, I don't know if this, some of the sequence is off, but you had a recruiting uh, director, assistant director of player personnel get arrested for stalking. And then you had a couple of players, including a quarterback, a freshman quarterback recruit, get accused of sexual assault. Yet another player get arrested for, I believe, grabbing his girlfriend by the throat. And you had this Chris Steele story of uh, their top recruit, who has since transferred, and there was some reports that we're going to get into with Will. And in addition, they've lost some commitments. Will, have I gotten all of it, or is there some other stuff that hasn't that that's kind of bubbled up as well? Believe it or not, Bruce, your timeline is pretty accurate, almost 100% so, there. I think that you forgot, the, um, or at least neglected to mention, Demarcus uh, Bowman from Lakeland, the pipeline school for Florida over the years deciding to go to Clemson, which was a real gut punch for Florida fans. But all that recruiting stuff, I mean, that's like the arrests and the off-the-field concerns is sort of the backdrop to some recruiting concerns, which obviously takes second fiddle to the more important issues at hand, but it's certainly a thing where they have to overcome. I also had this in the backdrop of Dan Mullen on the booster circuit, I guess, took some shots and tweaked Georgia, you know, of all places. 
And I don't want to say it's blown up in his face, but there's been so much drama around UF really since then that has come out. If you're a Florida fan, this is obviously a good first season on the field. Like, how concerned you should you be with some of these headlines and some of these stories? That's a great question. I think part of the needling that Dan Mullen did was in fun, but he was also sort of proving a point that, as you put it, could get thrown back in his face. Well, and and people can say, well, look at you now. You know, what do you have to say now about this? And one of those things was if we're bringing in recruits or players and then they're turning around right away and leaving, that's a poor reflection of the program. I'm paraphrasing there, but that was the gist of what he said. And now we've seen, well, two guys, Chris Beal, Jalen Jones, two important pieces to that class that they just signed that are no longer here. Now, to be fair to to Mullen and what he was trying to say, I think, and I can't be in the guy's head, but I think that he was referring to on the field and, okay, if I'm selling somebody like playing time or if I'm selling somebody a certain position and they get here and it's not what I said it was going to be, then that's a poor reflection. But, you know, people are not going to sort of add that sort of nuance or context. I mean, like what he said was what he said, and he has to go with the consequences of that every single time it gets brought up and, and into his face. The question about how concerning is it? Well, it's pretty. It's, I think it's pretty concerning that you have these huge issues. I mean, there's there's no way to get around of it. There's no way to get over it or around it if you're UF. It's a bad look. It's a horrible look to have uh, multiple players, at least two, accused of doing horrific things to a woman. I mean, that's just. There's nothing you could say other than underscore the idea that that's horrible for, for Florida, horrible for the people involved, and it kind of just puts everything else in respect as to like what's important and, and what we could actually say is not as much of a concern. Now, if you look at the issues by themselves, you could kind of say, okay, these are individuals making poor decisions in some respects, like a Brian Edwards, who you mentioned was arrested and charged with strangling his girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend. Does that have anything to do with an off the field staffer being accused of cyber stalking? Well, they're two different people making two very bad decisions, apparently, but they also fall under the umbrella of they're related to U.S. football. And so the accumulation of all of it is, very, is, in my opinion, very concerning and something that they have to face head on and address. In terms of the, so moving away a little bit from the disciplinary issues, but to just Dan Mullen and recruiting, you know, I remember last summer, his first, before he'd even coached a game, Florida fans were getting very panicky because they weren't, at that time, their class was ranked very low. He wasn't bringing in guys yet. And then they closed very well, and I think they actually finished in the top 10 or, or very close to it. But now I'm hearing the same concerns. And you mentioned the guy that got away to Clemson. In fact, I remember, you know, on top of all the other Florida stuff you guys have mentioned, they also announced to Home and Homes, which was a really big deal for Florida, given it never leaves the state. First one was Colorado, and I remember I screenshotted it. The Scott Strickland tweet about it, the very first response was, who cares... If we don't start recruiting better, we're just going to get embarrassed by these teams. So Dan Mullen is very respected as a, as a coach who, for what he did at Mississippi State, for coaching Dak Prescott and so on and so forth. But do we think he can recruit at the level you need to to do what Florida fans expect, which frankly is to contend for national championships? He still has to prove it. Uh, you know, we're a year and a half into, I guess, what, he was hired in November, what, 2017? So, yeah. 
I mean, he's still he's still on the face of it where he has to prove it and, and keep proving it because you're right. He's known for X's and O's, for scheming, for his offense. Nobody's ever said he's a great recruiter. Or at least nobody was ever truthful if they said that, <laughs> you know. And and the, and, and um, that's not to say he's a bad recruiter or or like that. But he has to recruit at a different level that he's used to. The kind of I don't want to say excuse, but the one of the reasons why they may have gotten off to a slow start last year was because they were not recruiting these type of kids at Mississippi State. That's just not the talent pool that you work with over there. And this what you know, Florida. Yeah, he recruited some of the powerhouses and got their three-star prospects every once in a while, but he wasn't in play certainly for these five-star kids and the high, high caliber four-star guys that are at the powerhouse programs in Florida that, you, that not only that you have to battle Florida state and Miami, but pretty much everybody else, or at least the elite programs like Georgia, Alabama, and now Clemson in the mix as well. So that was the sort of background or something that people would point to and say, okay, he need, he needed to forge these relationships and build them. And you say, okay, I could, I could sort of buy that to some degree, although we've seen other coaches go in and have success right away and, and um, just have a better start to their recruiting cycle than, than Florida did last time. But, you know, if you do buy that, if you do buy that line of thinking, you look at this year and you're like, okay, well, wait a second, we kind of had the same issues that we did last year. So, how plausible it was that reason in the first place. And I think a lot of it comes down to, okay, who's on your staff? I mean, Christian Robinson, their linebackers coach, young guy, former Georgia player, he's really proven his chops in the recruiting trail. He's a guy who, if you call up recruits and ask him, you know, who, who's recruiting you, who's talking to you, his name pops up quite a, quite a bit. Same deal with Larry Scott, tight ends coach, very familiar people in Florida from, from various programs know who he is. But other than that, you have a lot of guys who worked under Dan Mullen previously, a, a John Hevesy, a, a Billy Gonzalez, and those guys, quite frankly, like Dan Mullen, are not exactly known for their recruiting shops. They're known for X's and O's, scheming, offense, uh, developing. Those are their big hallmarks and calling cards under Dan Mullen, not recruiting. And I don't see Dan Mullen making sort of uh, stack changes because he's very loyal to his guys. Their offense has worked. They proved that it could work at Florida this past season. So, I mean, I get it, but it's just the, the prove it on the field stuff. I get that argument, but man, you got the early signing period these days. Like kids don't wait around like that. People, kids aren't waiting around for January, February to make decisions, and they're feeling the brunt of that. And you know, can can they overcome that? Well, yeah, they proved it last year. They finished number nine, and they 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 pulled some uh, rabbits out of their hat, I guess, with uh, Chris Bogle on signing day and Kerry Elam, the uh, hotshot cornerback uh, out of West Palm Beach. So yeah, they they proved that they could do it. But I mean, if I'm a Florida fan. I'm a little antsy. I mean, am I waiting till signing day every year now to see like, okay, maybe we're still in the mix with this kid. I mean, that's, that's walking a, a, a tightrope that fans don't want to walk. Getting back to the, uh, so their top recruit this past year and the news really that came, that's been around Florida in the last few days was related to Chris Steele. He's a Southern California kid, top 50 player was already enrolled. You advanced the story this week at the athletic with your sit down with AD Scott Strickland and so it's a little murky now. I mean, what? So his roommate, Chris Steele's roommate, was Jalen Jones, four-star dual-threat quarterback who Dan Mullen brought in. There were multiple allegations from women about him, and so it got reported both by the Gainesville Sun and by ESPN that Chris Steele had gone to, I believe, to Dan Mullen and had issue with Jalen Jones. Now, again, I don't. I, this could get into a he said, she said. I think what's really going to be fascinating with this story is also 
Chris Steele is probably going to try to get a, a eligibility waiver to be eligible this fall as a transfer at Oregon. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what he says and what the timing is. So what can you tell us now about about what uh, what you what Florida's stance is on this? Well, first, I think it's also important to say that even based on those reports, it was always sort of unclear who Chris Steele made those requests to if he did, in fact, make them at the time that is reported that he did. And so when it happened, who he made those requests to, why Florida would not grant those requests at that time is also a question that was unanswered. Although it does say in those reports that, hey, they they kind of were thinking about making a switch sometime in the summer. I've heard some conflicting information regarding when Chris Steele supposedly or reportedly, I should say, made that request to change dorms. And in fact, some people have even suggested to me that maybe Chris Steele said Jalen Jones should be removed from the dorm and not Chris Steele himself. Um, Those are some things that I've heard as well. And I think that sort of is important when you're trying to figure out what is like, who, who is at fault or what exactly happens here? Because I think it's interesting that you mentioned the fact that he told the idea actually that he told Dan Mullen, which the Gainesville Sun report did not include that, but that's kind of like what people jump to is that he did tell Dan Mullen and, and Dan Mullen either didn't do anything or didn't act quickly enough. And I think that's a little bit unfair at this point, just because we don't know if that even went up to Dan Mullen hundred percent. I mean, Chris Steele, if he did say something like, Hey, I, I don't want to room with this guy or this guy is doing X, Y, and Z that's wrong. We don't know who he told that to. And so we don't know if or when that ever got up to Dan Mullen either. So those are some big questions, in my opinion, that still remain with this. And Scott Strickland himself said yesterday in that Q&A that you mentioned that he can say that uh, what is being reported is an incomplete account of the circumstances as he understood them, which you know doesn't say a whole lot. But at the same time, that's the first time anybody from Florida has ever suggested that there was more to this story than what has been put out there. The one thing that uh, I guess ESPN had said was, I don't know if their report is just a little bit different from the Gainesville Sun one, was that he had made a request just to separate himself from Jalen Jones. It wasn't necessarily who was changing rooms or not. So I don't know if they, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of stuff that is murky about this and also that Dan Mullen, I guess, and his wife, according to ESPN, had traveled out to Southern California subsequent to this story to try to get him to rejoin the team, which obviously is not happening now that he's announced he's going to Oregon. So, uh, again, because of the nature of this, because of the nature of the waiver process, uh, and as Stu and I have talked about in other cases, you know, you often do not hear a lot of the details and behind the scenes of what happens, what's alleged on these waivers and what the NCA ultimately decides. Well, so I know, this, I know, I know this, this. will be a little more public. I know. So he's already announced he's going to Oregon and obviously he'll try to get a waiver. You know, whatever he puts in that waiver request, you know, as we've seen at other situations, Florida needs to sign off on it. You, you, you have a much better chance of that getting approved if Florida supports the request. And if so, if he puts things in there that they believe are not true or exaggerated, you know, they may try to block it. So, but we'll if, he, if, if he just says that if their waiver is, well, he wanted to be closer to home, he was homesick. That waiver is probably not getting approved. Right. Now, now, granted, Oregon's on the West Coast. It isn't that much, you know, like people are like, well, it's still a Pac-12. 
it's of like a four hour trip to get from LA to the University of Oregon. It's a two hour flight, a two hour drive. So presumably I, he's going to talk. He's going to say that he didn't feel safe or something to that effect because of the situation there with the dorms. And but then then that request goes back to Florida, and Florida has to. I don't know. It, it could get frankly it could. Based on what we're hearing now, based on what Will's telling us, I mean, it could get kind of ugly. I think so. And I think it's also worth mentioning, though, that when the report that included the, the two separate allegations against Jalen Jones became public, Chris Steele was mentioned in those reports as, as just a witness. No reported wrongdoing whatsoever in those reports, but, but his name is there. And so I think it's worth sort of just throwing out there that, you know, if I'm a parent of, of, a, of somebody and, and that's my kid, I'd be pretty, pretty miffed that my kid's in that report if I didn't, if my kid didn't do anything, because certainly in public perception and rivals and fans and, and all that, they run with that. And all of a sudden it's not exactly what's in the report, but it's a bunch of other rumors and and yeah, people just run with it and sort of make these um, accusations. And so I could see that from their from their perspective. It's just the fact that it didn't quite, even if that say was the tipping point, their what's coming from that sort of camp, if you will, didn't stop there. You know, it also included the roommate request and all that. But just I think it's worth throwing out there though that if that's my kid, I wouldn't I wouldn't blame them for transferring. I guess. Uh, with that issue. That's not something I want to be associated with publicly. Well, I guess bringing it full circle, um, so they're not the first program to have a lot of turmoil in the offseason. And generally speaking, it goes out the window if the team then has a really good season. People, people, it, what seems like a crisis at the time dissipates. So for a good first season, 10 and 3, good bowl win, you know, they are kind of measuring themselves against Georgia at this point. Georgia is supposed to be a top three team. What do you expect? at this point on the field this season? On the field, you still have the question mark of their offensive line replacing four starters. The The loss of Chris Steele was somewhat significant just because you're relying on a healthy Marco Wilson to come back pretty much 100% right away from that ACL injury that he suffered against Kentucky early last season. And you just don't know like what you're going to be able to, uh, to count on him for. I think he's an exceptional player, and he's super talented. Him and C.J. Henderson make uh, quite the duo at cornerback in the SEC. But he, Chris Steele was, was their third guy, was their third corner, and he was going to be their starter in probably 2020. But for this season, you know, that, so like that, that depth there is a question mark again, and it hurt them against Georgia particularly last year. The offensive line is a huge question mark because they had to replace four guys, and not for nothing, but the guys that are, who are emerging for these roles now weren't exactly pushing for starting jobs last year as part of a 2D that first unit last year had some struggles in some games and a reason why they didn't make changes was because they did not feel comfortable in these guys who are, who are now going to be taking starting jobs. Now a lot can happen over time and they still have time to, to get better and improve and develop. But as of right now, it's a huge question mark for me. Um, you would think that Felipe Franks takes another step forward. You don't know how big of a step that's going to be based on whatever his ceiling is, but he does seem to have some tools, some, some raw tools at least, and and we'll see. He, he's working with a veteran group at wide receiver and some capable running backs and tight ends. Um, and then defensively, they should be they should be fine, pretty similar to last year, even though they lost to Kai Polite. Uh, they added Jonathan Bernard from, from Louisville as a pass rusher. So I think that they probably could be around where they were last year. Um, I don't know if I don't expect them to be significantly better than that. I don't expect them to be a top five team 
But if you're telling me that they still finish in the top 10, maybe top 12, yeah, that, that kind of still makes sense to me. Um, I get the reasoning behind including them in a preseason top 10, but they sort of still have to prove that to me that they're at least good enough to remain there just because of that offensive line and, and um, some questions on defense as well. But yeah, I mean, the Chris Steele loss when you compare it to Georgia, I mean, Florida is a team without any five stars on its entire roster, let alone the class that they just signed. And Chris Steele was their closest thing. So that tells you all you need to know as far as the talent discrepancy between a Georgia and a Florida right now. Interesting times, Bruce. Yeah, that, and that's an interesting stat that Florida, you would think somebody, you know, had a bunch of high fours, but still, that is interesting. No five star guys on the roster. If you don't already follow Will Salmon, we encourage you to. He's done a fantastic job in his first year on the UF beat and uh he's a must follow if you're a uh if you're an SEC fan not just a Florida fan Will we appreciate your time uh joining us on the audible today great talking to you guys thanks for having me on thanks Will all right Stu let's get to the mailbag we got a lot of good questions our first question is from a familiar name it is Johnny She. I believe I'm pronouncing Johnny's name right hey guys love the podcast keep up the great work my Texas Longhorns recently agreed to a home-and-home with the Florida Gators. The write-up about this says that the last time they played each other was in 1940. I don't believe Brando was on the call, but he might have been. <laughs> Probably takes tra- taking trains to each other to get to play them. I was lucky enough to attend the first-ever contest between Texas and Michigan at the 2005 Rose Bowl. I googled a list of big schools who have yet to play each other, and he rattles off about 10 names— 10, 10 matchups. I'm going to go through them. And he says, which of these would you like to see as soon as possible? As soon as possible. Notre Dame-Auburn, Michigan-LSU, OU-Michigan State, Texas-Michigan State, Tennessee-Michigan State. A lot of Michigan State. Yes. Texas-Florida State, LSU-UCLA, Tennessee-Washington, FSU-Washington, Auburn-UCLA, Georgia-Washington. There are two that I picked out. What are your top two on his list? Okay. So it, this may be a case of just where these two programs are right now, but the first one was the last, for me, was the last one, Georgia-Washington. Two schools that could not be much farther apart, that could be not, not be much different in terms of parts of the country, culture. Of course, you've got the Jacob Eason connection right now. It's just something about the Georgia Bulldogs ro- rolling into Seattle and playing on the lake. And then the Huskies come in between the hedges. That one appeals to me. And then oftentimes Notre Dame is going to be involved in these things. But So I thought about Notre Dame-Auburn, but I think I ended up deciding on Michigan-LSU, the Les Miles Bowl, if you will. Frankly, I'm surprised that those two have never played. You know, we think a lot alike. I have Georgia-Washington. I will call it the Marshall Malchow Bowl. He was the <laughs> recruiting coordinator at Georgia who worked under Chris Peterson in Boise. And I have Notre Dame-Auburn. You know, Michigan-LSU I definitely thought of. That would be the next on my list. But I don't know. I just feel like anytime you get the an SEC school playing Notre Dame, especially when they haven't played before, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting one. So those are my top two. But I don't think you can go wrong with a lot of these. So there were I'm, a lot of interesting ones. I'm actually surprised that, that there weren't more glamorous ones than this that have never been played. For instance... When Georgia and Oklahoma met in the in the Rose Bowl a couple years ago, that's the first time those schools had ever played, which seemed crazy. And now we're seeing all these future home and homes announced. So if you literally look at this list, like I I, I would be fine seeing all of these games. But for instance, let's take Notre Dame Auburn. That is probably one of the two or three most appealing on this list. But the fact that that's the only one he mentioned that includes Notre Dame means 
that Notre Dame at some point or another has played pretty Schedule much every everybody. other marquee program you can think of. Let me cheat on this a little bit. There is, and let's say that what matchup, even if these teams have played before, would you most want to see this year that is not on the regular season schedule? So you're saying I can pick any two schools in the country? Yeah, and I know you're, you're going to probably pick two teams that are in the top 25. You're not going to take a down, you know, like Florida State against somebody. Who do you most want to see play this year that is not a regular season matchup? Ohio State versus Georgia. Oh, Justin Fields ball. Yes. I feel like there's that's, some bad blood there at this point over all that. that uh, that's a good choice. What do you got? I would like to see, you know, with all the talk with Lincoln Riley and Oklahoma, you know, I would actually like to see Oklahoma play against Georgia again. You know, I just feel like you have, and maybe this is a function of, I feel like I've been asked, well, you have Lincoln Riley ahead of yeah, yeah, Smart. Yeah. But I feel like there's some of that. I, I do think that Georgia is a really interesting school to me because Kirby Smart has got recruited ridiculously well the last two years and because we've seen them on a big stage and because I feel like there was a lot of people the thing that your game did you know your Ohio State Georgia matchup is both of those schools were kind of in the crosshairs of should they be in the playoff or not and I feel like that makes them a little more polarizing and I feel like they've become more polarizing and that's that's why I, I kind of have those two schools. But let me ask you something. Would you rather see Oklahoma play Georgia, or would you rather see them play Oklahoma play Alabama, given the Jalen Hurts factor? Yeah, but I just—I mean, I just saw that game. I know, granted, Jalen Hurts wasn't in it, but I mean, you and I both were at that. Yeah. At that game, so I don't know. To me, Georgia, and again, I don't want this to sound like it's Alabama fatigue, but I've seen Alabama against everybody. I want to see them play. Uh, whereas Georgia, I'm a little more intrigued. There's a little more of a prove-it component to me with Georgia. I'm very interested to see what happens with Georgia. Like, I feel like if they don't win a national title in the next two years, it's going to be a big disappointment. And let me just also say that you know, Clemson, being a relative newcomer to national powerhouse status, like I don't know off the top of my head all of their home and homes over the years. It does seem just, I mean, off the top of my head, it seems like they play Georgia and Auburn schools like that a lot obviously they're playing texas a&m now but just culturally like clemson usc something something like that would be really cool uh just to see them or, or clemson texas see them kind of get out of that part of the country and and play those big national brands now they have already added oklahoma but the, the you know the frustrating thing is all these home and homes have been announced recently like, you get really excited thinking about it. They're not going to be played for, like, 12 years. Yeah, yeah. And so most of these coaches are not going to be there. And the game is going to probably have evolved quite a bit. So people yes. will probably be running the triple option at that point. More people will be. And playing with helmets that have soft padding on the outside. The Guardian helmet. Yes. Okay. Hi, Stuart Bruce, a longtime listener of The Audible. After the recent NFL draft, many media outlets began comparing how each of the Power Five conferences did in terms of draft picks. And once again, the Big 12 had the least amount of picks. While I would never argue that the Big 12 has as much talent as the SEC, it is getting old hearing the Big 12 compared to conferences that have four more teams, each of which have 85 scholarships filled with Division I players. Logically, those conferences would have more players drafted because they have a larger pool of players to draft from. My question is this. Is there a way to more accurately compare the conferences factoring in how many teams are in each conference? Yes. This is from Daniel in San Antonio. There is a more accurate way, and I have seen it as I was Googling just to remind myself. 
Yeah, most of them still list the, the raw number, but some some outlets do do what I think is probably fair, more fair, which is the average per school. And when you look at this past season, it, it puts the numbers in a little bit more perspective. First of all, the SEC is so far ahead of the others at 4.6 draft picks per school. But then the next three are all very close together. Big 10, 2.9, Pac-12, 2.8, Big 12, 2.6. And then rounding out at the bottom, surprisingly, ACC 2.0, because ACC, that was a really down year for them in terms of NFL players. They, they're often number two behind the SEC. But so, you know, recasting it that way, now the Big 12 is not the, the outlier. They're really not that different than the other conferences that come in right after the SEC. Yeah, and this is something Ted Miller, our friend, used to do at the Pac-12 blog for ESPN years ago. And, uh, you know, look... I think with stats, you can kind of twist them as much as you want. What you can't really do is, you know, this number, again, the SEC with, with more than one and a half players per school average, that's not insignificant. Nope. Also, I would say that one thing that hurts the Big 12 is not just the fact that it's only 10 schools, but generally speaking, the more four and five stars you bring in, the more NFL players you're going to produce. And they really only have two programs, Texas and Oklahoma, that you see regularly you know, at or near the top of the recruiting list. And one of those, Texas, has not been putting guys in the NFL recently. I think that's about to change. Uh, I think they'll be back to contributing to uh, NFL numbers in a big way. So that number overall might go up. But, uh, you know, in general, the SEC, it's not just that they're in that part of the country or that they have 14 teams. They have a bunch of schools that regularly recruit at a high level. And the Pac-12 really only has two. Given what you're saying, maybe this is a project you, we could put Max Olson on. It'd be interesting that you know there's two big components for recruiting: the evaluation and then the development of those players. And if you wanted just to use the math of okay, how many five stars and four stars are these? If you're going to call them blue chip players, which would be five and four star guys. What percentage, you know, of each conference do you have? I mean, I come back to TCU with like an LJ Collier and these guys who are or Ben Banigou who are not big recruits and turn out to be really have really good careers and then get drafted relatively highly. You know, you'd see well, the Big Twelve, given what you just said about Texas, seems to be have some really good development there of some guys under the radar. We know TCU definitely does, and I think that's an interesting little little subplot to that. Yeah, and to be clear, just because you recruit those guys is no guarantee they're going to turn out to be NFL players. They have to be developed well. Uh, I think Florida State had historically low draft numbers this past year for them, and that's despite the fact that they came in. They had a top three class that year. Now, one of those players turned out to be a great player and left early to the NFL, and I believe is playing safety for the Chargers, Derwin James. But the rest, uh, most, almost the entire class was a dud uh, for some of those for off-field issues. You know, so, I've been working on Texas. I've been, uh, you may see it by the time this goes up, I had Texas A&M State of the Program, which goes up uh, Thursday. And do you know that Jimbo at Florida State, six of seven years, signed a top-five class? That's really good. Uh, and, and obviously, he's off to that start as well. Six Texas of the A&M. last seven years, or what? Six I mean, he, he was signed, there for He signed seven full classes, if you throw out the... You know, when he had first taken over for Robbie Bowden. That's, so what happened in the last couple of years? That's his what last I want to know. There? He didn't, the recruiting rankings suggest that he just kept recruiting at the same level. Clearly it tailed off. And also, by the way, the APR rank uh, numbers came out, the NCAA, you know, the way they measure academic progress. And Florida State, 
this past year, 2017, 2018, had the lowest score in all of FBS. So, I mean, one thing that's becoming clear, and I know Willie Taggart had a rough, rough, rough first season, is that Jimbo left behind a complete mess both on and off the field. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Why Why did those five stars and four stars and five stars stop developing into star players in college? That's a good question. A different question. From Tom McHale in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Stuart Bruce, which Power 5 conference schools have you yet to take in a game at, and which of those schools do you see crossing off your list next? Why and don't you he, answer this first? Yeah. Well, and he then offers to, he's from Council Bluffs, Iowa, and he says, if Iowa State is one of those schools, allow me to be your guide to the great tailgating scene in Ames. Pick a game, and we'll have a great time. I've never been to Iowa State, have you? No, and I have a game that both of us may be at. One, because I may be working it, maybe, I don't know yet. And two, because you should go to it. Week two, Iowa, Iowa State. What do you think? That game is week two? I believe it's week two. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, Bruce, but that is also LSU, Texas, and Texas A&M, Clemson. Yeah, but we can have other writers go to it. I mean, uh, oh, well, you've never been to this game. You need to go. Oh, so you're saying I should bypass the big national games and just, you know, pawn that off on our other writers and go to Iowa, I don't think, Iowa State. I don't think it's pawning off for them to go to, L- to go to Austin for LSU, Texas. I'm sure Max Olson would gladly go. He used to live there. In um, your case. Yeah, so I think that I would be... When like, are you going to go to Ames if you don't make this trip? I was just, I have this like uh, document that I do every year that is just like the highlights, the biggest games as of now on each week. Of course, once you get into the season, they, oh, guess what? You're wrong. Iowa, Iowa State is week three. Uh, uh, then the, and that's on a list of games that includes Clemson, Syracuse, Oklahoma, UCLA, Florida, Kentucky, Pitt, Penn State, and Stanford, UCF. So yes, absolutely. Iowa, Iowa State could arguably be the biggest game in the country that week. All right. So you think Stu is, game day is gone. Do you think game day will be possibly making a trip to Ames? I couldn't care less. I'm more concerned with <laughs> Stu Mandel's butt is going to be in Ames. And uh, Tom, Stu, if he's there, he will take you up on that. Um, Absolutely. I so, love going to new places. I love being taken around town. However, my answer to this question, the, the Power 5 school I've never been to that is – top of my bucket list is Colorado. I feel like I've been seeing that stadium on TV my whole life and it looks both the stadium itself and the backdrop. But Colorado for most of our my time at least covering the sport has been so bad. I've never had an occasion to go there. Have you been there? I have. I've been there several times. I've never done a game there though. I've done CU games, but they've been on the road, but I've been to Boulder for magazine stories and whatnot. I've been pretty much everywhere for games because of Fox in the Big Ten. You know, like I haven't done a game at Minnesota yet. I'm just thinking if there's a if there's a place that I have not been for a game. You know what? There is one. I have not been at Clemson for a game. Oh wow! Yeah, I I hadn't been up until the Lamar the year Lamar Jackson played there. Uh, you obviously are going to want to experience that at some point. Uh, I, I can't. So my, my running down the different. hill, yeah, is, is... Well, my situation is a little different than yours. Like, I'm busy during games, and I don't make my schedule. They make it for me, so... And Fox uh, doesn't have the ACC. 
does not have the ACC. So there's really so. no scenario where you could be in your current role and attend a regular season game at Clemson. That doesn't seem to be the case. Ah, though. actually, I have some great news for you. Clemson this year opens on Thursday night against Georgia Tech, the first Thursday night of the season. You could go to that and then head to wherever you need to be the next for the Saturday game. I don't know if I can do that because I usually get to games on Thursday. So make Joe Davis do the legwork. Just just have Joe Davis, fill you in when Joe, you get there. Joe Davis is tied up with 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 Dodger pennant race stuff at that. I'm point. just saying. I just gave you a layup, and you're not willing to take it. Uh, other Power Five places I've never been to a game would include. Actually, you mentioned one of them, Minnesota. We mentioned. Well, there's Iowa probably State. a lot. Have you been to Duke for a game? I actually have been to Duke for a game. Have you been to Chapel Hill no, 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 for a no, game? No, 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 no. My bad. I've been to Wake Forest for a game. I've seen Duke Stadium because I've been to basketball games there. I've never been to a game there. I've been to a Duke Duke football game when they played North Carolina. A lot of the ones I haven't been to are probably in the ACC, if we're being honest. I've been in the Carrier Dome, but not for a football game. Um, I've never been to a game at UNC. And that's another one, by the way. Keenan Stadium looks fantastic on television. Have you ever been to BC for a game? I've been in that stadium. I have not been to a game. Oh, oh, there's a big one. I've never been to a game in Pullman. Really? Yeah. Oh, I think you need to go. Yeah, I, w- I would love to go to a game. There. In fact, I think you need to drive there. I've never been to a game at Arizona, University of Arizona. Okay. But really, the one that I want to go to most probably is Army. Never been to a game at Army. Mikey Stadium. It's cool. Yeah. yeah, I grew up near there. It's Pretty stunning. I had never been to a game at your alma mater till last season. Oh, where, I scratched where, that off. Where the do you list. rank that fantastic atmosphere at Ryan Field <laughs> on your list of games? I don't know. I would probably say. I mean, it was pretty library. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't have a, a place that it was like. Oh, this is kind of like a Northwestern game. I mean, it was different. Let's move on. Mike in Houston, Bruce and Stu. Since Chad Morris has been hired at Arkansas, his recruiting efforts seem to be paying off. I know it is still very early in the 2020 class, but from the guys he signed last year and who he currently has committed, is it fair to say that his offense is more dependent on wide receivers than it is QBs? Between his 2019 class and the guys committed for 2020, he just keeps referring to him as Chad, as if they're best friends. Chad <laughs> has seven pass catchers over 6'3". He got the title of being a QB whisperer first time at Clemson by developing Taj Boyd and getting Deshaun Watson to come to Clemson, but looking back at it, He's also responsible for getting some different make difference makers on the outside at Clemson and SMU in Sammy Watkins, DeAndre Hopkins, Mike Williams, Artavia Scott, and Cortland Sutton, and Trey Quinn. Could Arkansas find a competitive edge by recruiting big play receivers? I'm sure that's the hope. Here's the problem with this. is Arkansas last year signed a top 25 class. Trey Knox is the, I think he's the biggest of those receivers, was a kid out of Tennessee. 6'5", 220 or whatever, four-star guy, big, big-time receiver. Uh, so they had a top 25 class. Off the top of your head, tell me where you think that class ranked in the SEC. You said it was in the top 25? Yeah. But barely, I assume? No, it was, yeah, it was 25. Uh, probably 7th or 8th. It was 10th. Oh, geez. It was 10th in the SEC. And there was only one SEC West school ranked below it, Mississippi State. So, I mean, that's the problem with, with that. I mean, this is, uh, you know, we joke about, about, you know, your love affair with Houston Nutt, but, you know, 
what that is a hard job right now with the way the SEC is wired. I mean, I think you and I both agree Brett Bielema is a really good coach, and he proved it at, at Wisconsin. But right now, the way the SEC is recruiting, especially in the West, I don't know. I'm not very optimistic. It was a two and ten first season for Chad Morris. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's going to get good receivers. You know who else is getting good receivers? Pretty much everybody else in that in that conference, especially yeah. in that division. Well, you mentioned Bielema. I think he found out the hard way. He he didn't get top 25 classes at Wisconsin, and yet they won Big Ten titles. And I think he thought he could go to Arkansas and do the same thing and found out the hard way that, no, you can't beat all these teams full of future NFL players without some of your own. So um, it's going to be on him to uh, – it's going to be on Chad Morris to obviously find some diamonds in the rough. Uh, it is true that maybe with his – you know. Here's here's my here's my things too. Like I, I think it's the opposite of actually what Mike is saying. I'm not saying you don't want good receivers or big receivers. The problem is in that division, if you're not recruiting badass defensive linemen and difference makers in the front seven, you're gonna lose. And the one thing that that Mississippi State really had going for itself in the last few years, whether it was you know Chris Jones or Jeffrey Simmons, or Montez Sweat, they've had some real studs in the D-line. And you see that, you know, across the board in that league. You know, you see just big, big-time front seven guys. And if if Arkansas is not able to get a lot of them, they're going to struggle to win more than five games. That, that, to me, that's just the way it is. I mean, you may be able to win your non-conference four, but you still got to get a couple others, and I just think it's going to be it's going to be a hard climb because right now, to me, you know, after you you win two games, the gap between you and everybody else, talent wise, is pretty substantial, and you need more than some receivers because your quarterback is going to be, you know, whether whatever the grad transfer guy it's going to be that they sign, they sign two of them is going to be picking himself from up from the grass a lot. But I assume our our listeners not necessarily talking about this coming season. He's talking about in going forward, the future with Arkansas. So let me, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but let me just maybe throw a more optimistic spin on it. How did Bobby Petrino uh, win back-to-back, I think he had 10 wins and then 11 wins the next season at Arkansas, and he was very similar to Chad Morris in that he was known as an offensive guru? I would make the case that the SEC West is much, much harder for for Arkansas now than it was. Remember, Bobby Petrino was there in the late two thousands and two thousand and eleven. You know, a that lot has changed. That was a pretty. I mean, Houston Nutt coached at a time when Alabama wasn't what they are now, and LSU at least at the beginning was. But by the time Bobby Petrino, we're talking two thousand. The Mississippi, yeah, two thousand eleven. I don't know. The Mississippi schools are a lot, you know, got a lot better than they were back when Petrino was in Arkansas, which is, you know, the next state over. To me, that was that's different. You know, you didn't have I'm not saying they were two gimmies, but Bobby Petrino's last year, they beat Mississippi State 44 to 17 and they beat Ole Miss on the road. I just think that that makes it harder. I'm not saying, you know, to me, Alabama was obviously had won a national title under Nick Saban. I think they're even deeper than they were then. I think that uh, you know A and M. I want to say that might have been someone's first year. A and M wasn't in the conference yet. 
So that, they that's they, one big they change. Play, all right, but they played them then, though. Oh, right, right. They had a series already going already. Yeah, so um, they played them. I think A&M is, is probably more talented now than they certainly were at the end of the Big 12 time. So my, recollection, my recollection is that Petrino basically held serve. He, he, they got their butts kicked by Alabama and LSU, and then they beat the other teams that weren't necessarily much more talented than they were. And so, you know, it's probably going to have to be the formula for Chad Morris as well, but still, at least in the short term, it's hard to see them being competitive with Alabama, Auburn, LSU, and even Texas A&M with Jimbo. So it's, the, it's a rough road ahead. I'm sorry this was such a... Uh, depressing answer. I mean, Mike clearly came in here wanting us to tell him that they were going to take the SEC by storm with all their 6-3 receivers, and you basically just, like, poured a big, cold bucket of water all, all over those hopes. I'm sorry. It was too intense. I mean, it's hard to, you know, like, and, and you got to get going fast. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I don't think you get four or five years if it's that's the struggle. All right, from Adam in Washington State. Guys, I was wondering if the Pac-12 is having any success that I haven't heard about in their quest to raise $750 million in capital. Personally, I don't know why it's taken so long for the Athletic to jump on board. Let's establish some West Coast bias to counter everybody else's love for the SEC and Big Ten. Stu, Adam Dirks wants to know what you think for them. You know, when I first read this, I thought, what are you talking about? We've got more West Coast bias than anybody. We literally have a column, Chantel's Best Coast Football and Best Coast Mailbag. Nobody else is devoting entire columns to Pac-12 football. And then I realized that, oh, wait, he's suggesting that the Athletic should invest the $750 million in capital to help the Pac-12. To answer his question, okay, first of all, if people aren't necessarily know what he's referring to, in an effort to close the massive revenue gap between the Pac-12 and the other power conferences right now that they can't really do anything about until their TV contract comes up, which is not for another five years, they are seeking they are seeking somebody who will actually take an equity stake in the conference, who would actually own 10% of the Pac-12, and the asking price is $750 million. It's very unorthodox and unusual, and frankly, there's people who have questions about whether they can even do that as a nonprofit, but anyway uh the only update i can give you is that when we were in phoenix a bunch of us sat around a table and larry scott uh we got to ask him a bunch of questions about the pac-12 and he said that the early uh he's been very pleased with the amount of interest in it so far that it's reaffirming that there's a strong demand for for college football and for live rights and that's really what they're banking on here that somebody wants to get on board because they're when they do get to that next TV contract, those rights could be worth an awful lot if, for example, Netflix wants to get it on the bidding, or Amazon, or Hulu, or any number of these other companies. I mean, the whole thing with the Pac-12 network and them maintaining control of it has been a long-term play at this potential big payoff one day down the road. So uh, I don't know if that means they're going to be making any sort of imminent announcements that somebody has bought 10% of the conference, uh, but that's where that's where that stands, and uh, you know the athletics doing very well. But I don't think we're in a position to invest three quarters of a billion dollars in a um, struggling football conference. Okay. Well, thank you for your, all your questions. Keep them coming. If you want to reach out to us, Stu? Why don't you share the mailbag address? The AudiblePod at Gmail dot com is where you can send your questions. Also, I want to alert you guys. That we often say, hey, go on uh, Apple Podcasts and give us a five star rating. Well, there have been a couple particularly harsh reviews lately directed at me, 
And, uh, and look, to each their own, but they have dragged down our ranking for the first time. It's gone below 5.0. So this is your is call. It, to- is, it, is this... Um- you know what? It's my call to arms. Can we tone Salty Stew on Twitter down a little bit? Because he's he's now he's hurting me. Well, there's the guy. One guy said I'm I'm uh, what was it that my I'm a hypocrite. I won't let my kids play football. By the way, I have one three year old daughter. I don't really have that decision to make just yet. It was it was pretty harsh. Anyway, I think we're down to a four point eight. So this is a call to action to all our listeners who do enjoy the Audible. Please. Take a, it'll take five seconds. Go on Apple Podcasts, leave a five. You don't have to re- leave comments, although we always appreciate those too. Give us a five-star rating. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already. You can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. come on, get over here. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.